0: All right, it's the Hemang Pulse, and we have a first timer on the Hemang Pulse, Dr. Aditi Shastri, who is going to introduce herself. And but um look, this is the podcast you folks are going to keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology. That, Aditi, that's what we tell people. This is how they can stay on track with all things heme. And this is um this podcast is part of a series we've been really discussing pertaining to ASH 2023 meetings, um, meeting and some of the data that were presented there. So before I get started, welcome to the Hema Pulse, maybe a little bit about you, where you are, what you do and how you spend your day and and um, what got you into hematology.
1: Thank you so much, Shadi. And, you know, thank you very much again for having me on your podcast. It's really wonderful for me to be here So just as some background, I am a physician scientist at the Montefiore Einstein Comprehensive Cancer Center in the Bronx in New York. And uh, I have been faculty here. I also did my fellowship at Montefiore. And uh, what got me into Hemong, that's a good question. You know, when I was, uh, I was always drawn to oncology, even as a high school student, I used to work with a nonprofit uh, that used to kind of work towards tobacco control and, you know, making policy about tobacco in India because cigarettes and, you know, just tobacco in any form is a rampant problem in India where I grew up so i was very drawn to oncology right from the beginning and uh, through my internal medicine residency i really had some wonderful uh, you know faculty but also uh, co-residents and fellows who really influenced me very positively for uh, towards hematology and one notable person i have to say in this regard is dr naval daver who is at the md I'm anderson very well yeah i know him very well yeah, he was actually my fellow on my very first hematology rotation, and I was super impressed with like just uh, the way that he, you know, just had such a great knowledge base and was such a fantastic teacher. So I definitely owe him that.
0: Uh... <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Dabber is gonna come on the show, so as long as uh, he's listening to this, uh, we'll bring him in. If he's not listening, we're not gonna bring him on. By the way, Aditi. so. <laughs> Um, ASH 2023 always is filled with thousands of abstracts, and uh, nobody can cover thousands of abstracts. So what I asked you to do is based on your research interests, what, what you do and where you sit in terms of research and clinical care, to choose several abstracts that intrigued you, piqued your interest, that you think are important to hematologists and oncologists in the field.
1: Yeah, thank you so much again for highlighting this. So I really chose to focus on something that is very much a part of our day-to-day clinical discussions uh, and also ties in a little bit to uh, knowledge that we're gaining more in terms of genomics, understanding genomics and genomic classification of MDS. So, you know, one of the things that Uh, we discuss almost on a weekly basis is really understanding the risk and the prognosis associated with having a TP53 mutation in MDS. And, uh, you know, as in our clinical groups, we're always trying to tease out, you know, what patients with TP53 mutants may potentially be, maybe have better prognosis compared to those that have worse prognosis. And this has far-reaching implications in terms of therapeutic decision-making, allogenic transplant, et cetera. So the first one that I was really interested in highlighting is an abstract from the Validate database. Uh, This is going to be presented on Monday as an oral abstract by Dr. Tariq K. Wan. And uh, one of the things that was done here, this is a large database across several specialized centers. And uh, what they really looked or analyzed very closely was patients with tp53 mutations uh, and just looking at their treatment response to hypomethylating agents as well as what is the overall survival of these patients and um, you know it's very interesting they actually kind of break it up as to the patients that have a monoallelic tp53 state versus those that have a biallelic tp53 state And uh, they also kind of compare them to patients that are wild type. As a background to this, you know, there has been some suggestion in prior published literature that potentially the TP53 monoallelic state might afford some better prognosis, but uh, we don't know for sure uh, and in what context. And this is something that the data actually shows uh, very surprisingly. I was truly surprised to see was that patients in this large data set that had any variety of TP53 mutations have a poor impact on survival. And it doesn't stand uh, in terms, but not necessarily, you know, response to HMAs. But in general, if you had like a TP53 mutation, whether it was monoallelic or biallelic, you definitely had worse survival compared to those that were TP53 wild type. So I, I think this again underscores the fact that we really as a clinical and scientific community need to come together to try to help our patients You know, with complex karyotype, T50, TP53 mutations uh, with MDS, because at this time we don't have great therapies to offer our patients with the, this very difficult to treat disease.
0: So Aditi, just to recap, p 53 conferred a good prognosis in MDS?
1: No, it conferred a worse prognosis. Worse prognosis. So, yeah, yeah,
0: that's what I thought. But why I guess in my mind, anytime I hear P53, I always associate that which with every disease with poor prognosis. Why was that surprising to you?
1: No, I think what was surprising to me was that whether you know there was this literature in MDS which suggested that if you had monoallelic, that is, if you had only one allele, you know, which was mutated, then you may not have as bad of a prognosis as if both your alleles of TP53 were I mutated, see. or you had more like biallelic status. So that was the surprising part. But Shadi, I completely agree with you. I think whenever you see TP53 with any cancer, you can definitely say that those are the more aggressive type of cancers and difficult to treat.
0: And then when it comes to these, um, I mean, uh, for these patients with MDS who have the TP fifty three, whether it's monoallelic or biallelic, does this affect your management today uh, in twenty twenty three, beginning of twenty twenty four? Are you still doing whatever hypomethylating agents, potentially allogeneic transplant, or is the presence of p fifty three making you decide something or another?
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. So I think it always to us depends what is the overall context, right? In which you're also seeing these P53 mutations. Now, typically uh, when we see patients with high-risk MDS, we see these patients uh, might have been had prior chemotherapy or radiation for maybe a solid tumor or another cancer. They have a very complex karyotype these are the more aggressive uh, types of MDS to treat and more poorly responsive to standard chemotherapy and allogeneic transplant. Now, another situation I can give you, which I also want to highlight is an abstract uh, at ASH this year, is also potentially being presented in the same session, talks about the TP53 allelic state now in a different type of MDS, which it actually has a better prognosis is one which has an isolated deletion 5Q. Mm. So as we know, like these are the patients with the isolated deletion 5Q, we do have some good therapies to offer them. You know, we can treat them with Revlimid or lenalidomide uh, where, you know, the patients have a, anemia response to this kind of treatment, now this actually looked at you know what is the overlap of this mutation with uh, the deletion 5q and they found that there was a small subset of patients maybe about 18 to 20% if i remember right that just had this overlap with the deletion 5q um and uh, you know there is actually this monoallelic state in this case you know may afford a little bit of uh, you know some amount of a better prognostic significance uh etc so you know these are just like i said yeah, so the
0: the fi- ex- the 5q five, five deletion might overcome the poor prognosis of the p53 allelid.
1: exactly exactly so you know sometimes these karyotypes that we knew back In the day, they are still helpful till today. They help us prognosticate the patients, even in this genomic era. And I guess what I would say is the overall context now in which you're seeing patients matters so much. Right, like basically whether they've had prior therapies, what their performance status is, what are the co-occurring mutations. I think ultimately donor availability for those you know across the world, this is a can be very different, right? Depending on where you live. So yeah.
0: That's very interesting. And right now for uh, for these patients for five Q deletion you have been using lenalidomide. Does the data change using lenalidomide for this patient population?
1: No, not really. I think lenalidomide is one of those things that's really time-tested, and uh, it is still the best therapy that we can offer patients with deletion 5Q. Uh, One of the advances really in the field of MDS has been you know, in low-risk MDS, where we recently had the FDA approval of the drug Luspatercept, Mm -hmm. right? So that's something that you might have seen in the literature and, you know, just the FDA updates. And uh, Dr. Guillermo Garcia-Manero is going to present an update on the frontline study of the Luspatercept, where it was compared head-to-head with erythropoietin in low-risk MDS. And uh, while some of this data was already published earlier this year, this is the full efficacy and safety analysis of the COMMANDS trial. And uh, this actually does show very nicely that, you know, in the study where the patients were randomized to either Epoetin Alpha or Luspatercept, you know, overall, the patients that got loose Luspatercept had a better, uh, you know, had a faster anemia response. So quicker RBC transfusion independence, a more sustained response. Um, and uh, this kind of uh, is clinically practice changing that loose Luspatercept has now moved into the front line for treating anemia associated with low-risk MDS.
0: That's great. What else do you have for us?
1: You know, there are lots of exciting things, I would say, at ASH, right? It's always difficult to uh, stop yourself from turning your head 360 degrees because there's always something cool happening. There is a nice poster, a clinical poster from our group which looked at really modifying the VLEA, the hypomethylating agent venetoclax backbone in MDS and AML, and asking, well, is less more? So what we did is we really uh, reduced the dose drastically. We are doing a metronomic dosing in an investigator-initiated study where we're doing once a week treatment with dacogen and venetoclax with uh, very good responses, in patients and specifically back to the TP53 question of the five patients we've treated so far with TP53 mutations, four patients have achieved a CR using this low dose backbone. So this is something that we are excited about and looking forward to the data as we keep accruing our patients on the study.
0: That's great, congratulations on this data, Aditi. Um, I wanna just circle back really quick on the, you mentioned a couple of things pertaining to low risk and high risk MDS. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to simplify how, you know, for a hematologist out in the community, when they see a patient, how do they, like what test do they need to do to subclassify this patient? Because it seems that the way you approach low risk is different than high risk
1: absolutely you know i think that's a great question shadi and you know as our uh, knowledge evolves you know the tools that we have at our disposal also evolve right so we used to use at the beginning of you know when you diagnose a patient prognostic tools like ipss or the international prognostic scoring system but now we have a you know a updated molecular ipss or the ipssm and this is a web calculator which is freely available you know to most people that have access to just an internet connection and uh, you know what you can in addition to just the clinical variables if you have the next gen sequencing data or if you have genomic profiling if you plug this in it gives you a nice score as well as a visual representation of where your patient stands, you know, in the scheme of the risk stratification from very low risk to very high risk. And I think this can really help people. This is a useful web tool that I think can help community practitioners and academicians alike to think about where their patients are in their disease spectrum and risk stratify and treat them accordingly. So I do advocate using, uh, you know, these sort of formal tools in the clinic
0: are there i mean like we talked about there's like gazillion data get presented ash are there any new drugs on the horizon new class of drugs on the horizon in in your field of interest which is more along the 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 side of uh, mds that is exciting you or like we need to like kind of watch closely as data evolves and emerge.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so we this was presented at ASCO already, but, you know, we have a positive phase three trial also in low-risk MDS, which is the IMERGE trial with the telomerase inhibitor, which is imetelstat and uh, this drug has positive data in low risk mds and in addition to just improving the clinical parameters the one thing we saw from uh, you know the uh, some we saw from the publications and presentations is that it is potentially disease modifying because it is reducing the variant allele frequency of certain mutations as well in mds so we're looking forward to seeing what are the regulatory further milestones that are reached by this specific drug. In addition to this, we have a uh, sabatolimab, which works along the TIM3 pathway, which is a kind of an immune immunotherapy, so to speak, in MDS. We have the the drugs which inhibit XPO1, which is another target that is uh, overexpressed in MDS. I would say that, you know, and then, of course, we have things that filter down to us from AML. So venetoclax is another drug which people are looking at eagerly, potentially that in a you know, more abbreviated schedule with azacitidine can have efficacy uh, in MDS. And we are waiting for the results of the phase three study for venetoclax and azacitidine. So BCL2 inhibition is also something that we are looking at.
0: And then in terms of observation and just doing nothing, are are we getting better in deciding which patients with myelodysplasia we can really just sit tight Uh, I'm a big fan sometimes of knowing this because as we can both agree on, sometimes waiting allows you to really not kind of damage things with treatment and who knows what's the next available therapy in a year or two years from now that patients could benefit. But I kind of feel, I feel sometimes these decisions are not like kind of made as a gestalt. Like, you know, I think we can really wait three months, six months, or is there really criteria Where if patients come in the door, this is observation.
1: Yeah, you know, I think Shadi, it's a a great question. And I think some of it refers to what you're saying, like it is the art of medicine, right? This is really Ah. the art of medicine, knowing who can you treat, who should you treat, who should you wait on a little bit and observe. And my guess is if you ask 10 people in the room, you'll probably get 10 different answers. Uh, but I I actually think that, you know, especially in a setting where I practice, like in the Bronx, where we have a large underserved minority population, you know, in a, you know, we're just dealing with so many things outside of the disease as well, you know, for our patients that sometimes you're right, like just observing the natural course of Things is not necessarily you know the wrong thing to do, and if somebody is not transfusion dependent and you know doesn't have like high risk mutations, uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable to just wait it out and see what's happening. You know sometimes people take a long time to develop any degree of uh, transfusion dependency or you know more you know even low one like platelets or RBC transfusion need, et cetera. So on one hand, you could say, yes, you could wait. There's also data to show that, you know, maybe if you treat like, you know, there is a study from Spain that if you gave Revlimid to patients that, you know, had this five Q, et cetera, and you, they weren't yet transfusion dependent, you're actually uh, increasing the time them becoming transfusion dependent. So you are modifying the natural history of the disease sometimes if you intervene therapeutically. But I think it really requires very good selection of the patient, like, you know, when you're doing these sort of interventions, more as a kind of preventative way, right? So yeah. um, I think patient selection, careful discussion with your patient that, hey, you know, this may incur some side effects, you know, just so you know what to watch out for. So yeah, yeah. but yeah. I, I actually think there are patients where it's reasonable to wait. And I do wait sometimes to start treatment and just follow patients in clinic when I mean, it's not had-
0: You have a good point. It's the, if you believe that the drug is a disease modifying drug, then you really want to treat because you can modify the disease. If you don't think the disease as an entity could be modified, then waiting in some, I just, I just didn't know if there's like a criteria where we could tell folks, look, if this, like, you know, if the patient is transfusion independent, the white cells are over X, the platelets are over X. Just wait and repeat in three months. I don't know if there's an actual criteria in the MDS community.
1: I don't know. I don't know Uh, either. We
0: ask five people and we get six answers. Well, Aditi, I know that you have to run to a mentorship program um, that uh, in addition to all of the hats that you wear, you uh, mentor students or fellows or residents.
1: Yeah, that is true. I am running to a mentorship uh, program with our high school students. So, yeah, so we do have summer high school volunteers from the Bronx in our lab. And so this is actually the I personally for me, the most fun part of our job is the fact that we get to mentor students all the way from high school to fellowship. And uh, as much as, you know, we, I think, oh, we are helping them. They help us too, you know, they really help us stay uh, grounded, you know, stay focused. They ask amazing questions. They
0: ask ask (laughs) good questions where I'm like, please stop. I I, I just don't know how, (laughs) I'm not really sure of the answers.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they keep me on my feet more than anyone else.
0: Well, Dr. Aditi Shastri, uh, Montefiore, Albert Einstein, thank you so much for reviewing some interesting data from ASH 2023. And I look forward to having you back on this podcast when we have more data again next ASCO, ASH, EHA, all of the meetings that we usually have throughout the year.